Good morning again. It's good to be with you this morning. This is our last sermon on the Psalms this summer. I'm sure we'll be back in the Psalms at some point, but as far as this summer goes, we are finishing up the Psalms this morning. And so our Psalm that we'll look at is Psalm 147. And so if you turn there in your copy of God's Word, Psalm 147 is a Psalm of praise. And if you look through the last few Psalms here in the book of Psalms, you'll notice that Praise is the theme. If you think about the Psalms as a book and sort of its organization, we'll know that at the end, praise is right there at the center. And maybe that's what you're most familiar with in the Psalms. Psalms of praise, Psalms that sort of lift up all that God has done and give praise and glory to His name. Over the summer, as we've worked through these Psalms, I hope we've seen that the Psalms are places that we can go with all of our experiences, our joy, our sadness, our our anger, our frustrations, our hopes, and we can come to God's Word and find a way of expressing that back to God and having Him shape us and change us into the image of our Savior Jesus. That's part of what we've, I hope, seen through the Psalms this summer. And today's psalm is, is no different. It ends on this note of praise, of saying, this is how we give glory to God. This is how God works in and through us as we give these words of praise back to Him. So would you stand this morning for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant And a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to them all their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to praise your name. Lord, as we come to this passage, would you work in all of our hearts that we would, we would respond as your word calls us to, to praise your name, to lift it high, to, to see that you are great and abundant in power. Lord, would we worship you in spirit and in truth this morning? Lord, would you bless the words of my, my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> I don't know if you've been to a, a wedding recently. If you've been to some weddings, there's a, there's a dance sort of during the reception, right? And these are sort of fun socio uh, sort of things to watch and, and see how people respond when the dance begins. There's sort of, you probably know this, there are two things that happen. There, there's one group of people that sort of gravitates towards the 
dance area, whether it's in a barn or wherever people are getting married, like they gravitate to the dance area. And everybody else sort of impulsively sort of takes the step back and sort of arranges themselves around the perimeter of, of the room. We were at a wedding, uh, a family member's wedding earlier this summer, and that, that sure enough happened. There were sort of the people that moved initially to, to dance and everybody else that sort of were on the outside watching and seeing what was about to, to transpire. I think sometimes when we come to a psalm like this, a psalm of praise, that sort of dynamic happens. There are some of us that hear this call to praise God and say, yes, that's, that's exactly what I want to do. I'm sort of drawn into it. The music, the beauty of these words is so profound and that I, I can't help but sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, make melody to our God with a lyre. But even as that dynamic happens, I think there are also some of us that, that sort of move to the, the peripheral we sort of move to the side, as it were, and we say, I know I'm supposed to praise the Lord. I know I should want to praise the Lord, but sometimes I don't really understand what that means, and sometimes I don't really have a sense that that's something that I desire or should be doing. And I think it's to that sort of emotion, that sort of reality when we encounter God's call here to praise that this psalm addresses directly this morning when we don't sense or aren't drawn, so to speak, to, to praise. And maybe it's because of some of the stuff that verse 2 and 3 addresses in this psalm. Maybe you are brokenhearted this morning. We'll talk more about what that means in a moment. Maybe you are wounded spiritually, emotionally, physically. You, you've experienced something very difficult, and it's hard to take that difficult thing in your life and then actually go to God in, in praise, to follow what is, is called here for us to do. And so sometimes we, we just sort of go through the motions on a Sunday morning when we praise. And the psalm isn't just talking about gathering sort of corporately to praise. It's talking about all of our lives given over to God in praise. But sometimes it may seem that we just sort of go through the motions. Our worship is a little bit tepid, a little bit sort of just perfunctory. We sort of do it because we're supposed to, and we go through the, the motions hoping that something happens. But how do we take that to a psalm like this that gives this command even to praise the Lord? This language here is language of command, that we must praise the Lord. How do we do that? How do we begin to understand what God is calling us to this morning? Well, it begins in verses 1 through 6 with this picture of being restored by His power. Why should we come and, and praise God? Well, He restores us by his, his power. Look with me at verse 1. It says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant. The sense of goodness there is not one of sort of, it's morally right to praise God, although that is, is right and true. Here it's talking about it's actually good. It's, it's pleasant. There's something delightful in us praising God. It is pleasant. It's even beautiful. A song of praise is, is fitting. It's right and good that we would, we would do this. And then we get some of the reason. It comes partially because it's pleasant, but then in verse 2, he begins giving us this picture of what God does, what we're sort of caught up into as we praise his name. Verse 2 says, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. These are some reasons to, to praise God. What is being talked about there? It, it may mean that God is sort of actually drawing his people back in after they've been in exile, but the words don't 
have to just limit to that context. It's, it's God's work of bringing people into himself, restoring us, pulling us in when we are outcast, when we are experiencing sort of the realities of a fallen world where we are far from God and he pulls us back in. He does that through Jesus. And that's something that moves us to praise his name, to, to glorify him as this passage calls us to. He gathers outcasts. If you're an outcast this morning, I don't think any of us would like to say, yes, I'm, I'm an outcast, but there may be places in our life where, where we have experienced that reality. Maybe you feel far from God this morning. Maybe you feel far from your friends or, or wherever you are, but, but God is showing us something here that he does, and really what we'll see as we work through this psalm is right at the center of how all of these things God does. How do all of those happen? Well, it's, it's Jesus. We'll come to that again and again through this, this psalm as he draws us to himself, gathers the outcasts. Verse 3 also offers this, he heals the brokenhearted. Now, when we hear the word brokenhearted, I think we've been conditioned to think of that primarily as a, as a romantic sort of experience, sort of a broken heart. We were in love and our, our hearts were broken. The, the word here isn't specifically talking about a romantic context, but literally a heart that has been broken. A heart, it's two words that has been put into many pieces, sort of a, a shattered heart, something that has been so severely broken ripped apart, and, and we're not really sure how we're going to put that together. And I, there's, there are places in our life where we can probably understand what it means to be brokenhearted, where we have experienced real pain, real loss, and we're not sure how this could really be made right. And, and what do we see here? We see that He, this is God, heals the brokenhearted. If you walked in here this morning with a broken heart, this psalm is pointing us to the fact that there is healing for that. Not only that, but he also binds up their wounds, places of pain, sorrow, hurt, the, the very place in our life where our sin is most apparent, where it has wounded others, where we have been wounded by other people's sin. It's, it's there that God is, is active, binding up their wounds. The picture of binding is, is literally sort of tying and holding together, constraining, dealing with the pain. It's the God that we have. And, and what's remarkable about this, this psalm is even here as we see a God who cares so profoundly about these, these things, our wounds, our broken hearts, all the ravages of sin and rebellion in this world, it also gives us this expansive picture of his power. It's not that God is just a God who cares about the difficult things in your life. He actually has power to do something about that. Verse 4 says he determines the number of the stars and he gives them all of their names. It's almost a dizzying sort of, we're here talking about a broken heart and now we're talking about the galaxies that God has created. All the wonder and all the power that he has. I'm sure you've all seen the, the new telescope images, right? I think every pastor in America has probably talked about them at some point. But they're so captivating, aren't they? These web telescope images. If you haven't looked at them, go, go see these things of far-flung places that God has created. Places where stars are forming and all these wonderful things that we don't really understand are happening. This psalm in verse 4 talks about him determining the number of the stars. This God who determines the number of the stars is the same God who, who heals our broken hearts and binds up our wound, wounds, gives them all of those stars that we are now naming. He has given them their true names. 
He is the one who is in control of all things. Great is our Lord, verse 5 says, and abundant in power, sort of overflowing. There's no limit to his power, and his understanding is beyond measure. The psalmist goes to the intimate details of our life and the far-flung parts of the solar system and says, this is the God who restores us in his power. How does this happen most directly? Well, it happens most directly through, through Jesus. The language here of healing the brokenhearted is echoed in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 3 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Those words from Isaiah 61 are the words that Jesus uses as he begins his ministry in Luke chapter 4. The psalm is pointing to not just God, but Jesus most specifically who accomplishes this work of healing us. Healing us primarily from our sin, primarily from the fact that we are sinners in need of God's grace. This is where all of this restoration, this restoring the relationship with our God comes in and points us, this is the reason in and through God's power that we can praise his name, that we would actually begin to move towards praise. And this, this might surprise us a little bit because when we, when we come in here this morning, we might think that a broken heart is the farthest thing or a wounded self is the farthest thing from someone who would go to praise God. But it's actually in those places of difficulty, those places of brokenheartedness and woundedness, that God, through his power of restoring, moves us to praise. And, and maybe you've experienced that in your life, places that seemingly were very difficult and, and were really difficult, things that were hard to walk through as you saw God minister to you in and through that, in part now and looking to the hope when he fully does that in the new heavens and the new earth. As we walk through that, we actually find places of praise, praising God, giving glory to him for his, his wonder, his power, his care, his willingness, as verse 6 says, that he lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. And we see that in and through Jesus the one who accomplishes all of this. And so we are called to worship. We do that every Sunday morning, right? We're called into worship. We're called into something that all of creation is doing. All of God's people together are doing, not just on Sunday morning, but we're called into this this movement of praise to sort of lift up the God who deserves all of our, our praise. This psalm is really helpful in that it pushes against this view of God as someone who is sort of indifferent to us. I think sometimes when we, when we read a passage like this, there might be a part that says, well, God is so powerful, he's so sort of concerned with the glory of the stars and everything that there's no way that he could actually interact with, with me, with my circumstances. But the, the re- remarkable thing is that that really is a, a false dilemma, if you will. If God is so powerful that he can care about the stars, it, it necessitates that he is large enough and powerful enough that he would also care about the intricate details of your life, where you have experienced this reality of being outcast and brokenhearted. The psalm is one that we, together, as we take the real parts of our life where we have experienced sin and our sin and our rebellion and, and come to God in forgiveness and have that dealt with, move towards him with great praise and great hope. God restores us by his, his power. But not only that, but he also provides for us in his, in his pleasure. Look at me at verse 7 and following. It gives us this picture, again, of singing to the Lord, now with thanksgiving, making melody to our God 
on the lyre. This language of, of singing is, again, a call. It's not a suggestion, but it's actually a command that we would sing to God. Singing here is a sense of answering back to God. And fit, Thanksgiving is, is fitting there. Singing is not just sort of, a, sort of something that bubbles up because we're, we're excited. It's, it's something that is in response here to what God has done. Make melody to our God with the lyre. There's an intentionality and there's a, a beauty as sort of the prepared musician gives glory to God through the skills that God has given him. Thanksgiving for what God has, has done. We see this picture of God's provision in verses 8 and 9. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth, even as he did for us briefly this morning. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Maybe we've, 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 we know these parts of the Psalms, right, where we go through aspects of creation. But I love the attention to detail in a psalm like this. The cattle, the ravens, these small parts that we don't even think about in God's creation. God is actively sustaining them. He is holding all things together. He is giving them and preparing what they need. Giving them grass to grow on hills. All of these things, their food. It's that level of care that we see. And, and God is not just sort of doing it begrudgingly, but he's doing it with pleasure. There's a contrast here in verse 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. What God takes pleasure in doing, providing, and now what he does not take pleasure in in verse 10. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor is pleasure in the legs of a man. Now, that's a verse that's been taken out of, out of context. I remember going to church and somebody used that verse to say that men shouldn't wear shorts to, to church. It's not what the verse is, is talking about. It's talking about sort of the, the power of, of men, the power of horse. This could be in an agricultural context, but it might also be a, a military con context where there's a sense that strength is determined by how many men you have marching and how many horses you have going forward. But the psalm reminds us that we don't take delight there. God doesn't take delight there, and so we shouldn't either. His pleasure is not there. Where does God take pleasure? Verse 11, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. That's where God takes pleasure. And, and, and it's not simply God sort of taking pleasure in us because we gave him something, so now he's sort of pleased that we're fearing him. But God actually takes pleasure in us. He takes pleasure in his, in his people. That's, that's remarkable as we think about what it means to return praise to him, to, to lift up his name. He, he takes pleasure in us. I don't know if you heard this uh, news story earlier this week. A restaurant in Houston was being held hostage by online reviewers. So what happened is the restaurant owner got an email, and you might have heard stories like this. This is just the most recent iteration of it, where owner gets a, uh, an email and says, hey, if you don't send me this gift card, I'm going to start posting one-star reviews on your restaurant. And they'll do it. They'll kind of just maliciously post these one-star reviews to pull your, your ranking down. And so this is just a phenomenon with this one restaurant in, in Houston recently. But it reminds me, I think, sometimes how we wrongly view God. We have a God who is sort of there holding out blessing on us if we sort of return a positive review or positive praise to God. If we praise God enough, if we sort of give him what he deserves, then he'll, he'll be kind to us. It's not the picture, that's not the order that we see in this psalm. God takes pleasure in caring for his people and his creation. 
God takes pleasure in giving his people rain. He gives pleasure, takes pleasure in giving his people good things. He takes pleasure in even saving his people. We see that in Jesus, don't we? What did he say? The joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12, verse 2. He endured the cross, enduring its shame. For the joy, for the pleasure that was set before him, that there was actually wonder and pleasure in what he did, even as he went to the cross. That Christ, that God would be glorified, that we would be brought up into God's people in a way of security and, and salvation. God isn't somehow empowered by our worship. He isn't dependent on it. Rather, because of what he has done, he deserves it. And so we return thanksgiving to him. And so we need to worship him. We need to praise because we need to be in line, as it were, with our very created purpose, what we have been put on this earth to do, to give praise to the one who is wonderful. Maybe another roadblock that comes into our, our praise of God is when we don't get what we, we think we want. I think verse 10 and 11 have something to tell us there. Sometimes we, we sort of begin to praise God, but then things come into our life that surprise us or things that don't align with what we desire. And so we, like these people, take pleasure in the strength of the horse and sort of man's power. And, and when that goes awry, we sort of ask the question, well, well is God really worth praising? become disappointed with, with God. But this psalm reminds us in verse 11 to reframe what is good, and it comes in the hope in his steadfast love. That steadfast love is gospel language. It's God's hesed, his, his faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness to us that points us to Jesus again and again. It's, it's there in our moments of disappointment that we go to and find real lasting hope, something that would move us to praise the God who is not distant distant, but a God who is, who is near to us. Finally, in this psalm, it gives us this picture of praising at his word. How does all of this happen? God does these things, but how does he do them? Verse 12 and following gives us this. Again, it calls us to praise the Lord. O Jerusalem, praise your God, O Zion. God's people gathered in God's city are praising him. Why? Verse 13, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. Again, this picture of God's provision, his pleasure, his restoring of all things that are right and good and caring for them. But the how comes in in verse 15. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. It's a picture of God issuing forth a command and literally a sense of sort of a messenger running forth with it, taking it swiftly to sort of spread it out so that everyone would know. That's how he does this. That's how he makes peace in your borders. That's how he fills you with the finest wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. It's a beautiful image of God's word going forth with power. How does, how does all of this happen? How are we restored? How do we see his pleasure? Well, it's through his word. It's through his word, his actual commands that he's given us through the Bible that God gives us this, this restored joy that moves us to praise. It's a wonderful picture that he carries on in verse 16 with this picture of, of power. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? 
Now, I, I love that image. I, I think the, the detail on God's power and his creation, sometimes we talk about God's power so generically, but there's something about this psalm that, that gets into the specifics of God doing things in and through even creation and nature. Hailstorms and, and, and blizzards. If you've ever tried to sort of stand in a blizzard where it's really buffeting you, it's, it's difficult. It's impossible. It's God's power on display. Who can stand before his coldness? Who can stand before a blistering wind that, that freezes us? And, and then there's this picture of God sort of in his power, and it's almost uncomprehensible in, in the power and the majesty of this, this snowstorm, if you will. But then verse 18 says this. He sends out his word, and he melts them. Just as strong and powerful as God displays his power, so too he, he can correct and change all things by the word of his power. He sends out his word. This word that runs swiftly, this word that causes us to praise him, and he, and he melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. The picture of a wind blowing there is possibly a, a spring wind that comes in and sort of melts everything. If you've ever been in sort of the mountains when it melts, there's, there's just the sound of water everywhere. It's God's power, his word going forward, declaring a new season, declaring how things should be. And then in these last verses, there's another picture of the wonder of God's word. Verse 19, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Now, this again might be surprising to us. Not if we know Scripture, if we've read it, but, but when we sort of come to the end of this, it may seem that the psalmist is going in a, in a slightly different direction, now talking about rules, talking about sort of requirements and, and things that we should do. Why would that move us to joy, even as we look at God's, God's Word? We need to remember the, the purpose of God's rules. Why does God give us commands in Scripture? A lot of us think he just sort of gave them to us arbitrarily, and so we've got to maybe follow these. But God has always given his word with intentionality. First, he gives us his, his word and his rules because that is what he commands, and it is what brings glory to his name. But also, it gives us the best way to live. It's given to us for, so that we would flourish, that we would sort of walk in the ways that are good for his people, the ways that are wise and true. But also, when God gives us his law, in and through Scripture, it is because he has started a covenantal relationship with his people. That's where he gives us the Ten Commandments. Because God has made a, a covenant with his people, he then gives us the law, and he gives us the whole sacrificial law in Leviticus so that a holy God can dwell with unholy people. And so for, for the psalmist here to delight in God's statutes and his rules, it's to delight in all of that wonderful covenantal reality of a God who draws us to himself, a God who is worthy of worship, a God who declares his word to Jacob, this, this declaration in verse 20 that he has not dealt thus with any other nation is not one of pride. It's not one of saying, wow, we are somehow better, we have the right rules and everybody else doesn't. It is saying God has dealt graciously with us. He has given us what is, is true and right and good in his word. That we would follow that, that we would follow that and ultimately see that that draws us not to some moral code that we have to attain for salvation, but to a Savior who is Word made flesh. A Savior who came and, and fully followed all of this perfection that we see in God's, God's law. Followed that, 
pay the penalty for our failure to do that. And so we, with this psalmist, say we delight that he has not dealt with any other nation like this. He has not dealt with any other people like this. And how amazing, how wonderful it is that he has dealt with us in this way. And so the echo of this psalm is to praise the Lord. To praise the Lord, even as he began praising the Lord, he ends praising the Lord, having reflected on all the wonderful things that God has done. All of this points us to Christ and what Christ has accomplished. What do you and I do with this? Well, we run to his, his word. Even as God's word runs swiftly, we run to his word to see the wonder of, of who he is. I think sometimes we've, in, in sort of our, our Western culture, we've privileged sort of the sort of uh, organic praise, sort of when we, when, when we have a moment when we come to church and things just seem to be going well, we're, we're sort of in line with all of the, the worship songs, the lyrics are really meaningful, all of these things. We sort of have privileged that as, as the true form of worship. But there's something beautiful about simply coming to God's Word and confessing the truth there. Confessing what is true there, giving praise to God, and not, not worrying about sort of having the right experience, as it were, but simply responding to God in the glory and wonder of who He is. Trusting that as we do that as a matter of habit, God will shape and form our hearts to be hearts that, that delight to praise His, His name. That that is our, our chief end, even as this psalms, these psalms come to an end with this language of praise, it is our chief end to give glory to God and to find enjoyment in that, our very created purpose, giving Him great glory, even in those moments where our hearts are broken, even in those places where, where we are wounded. I had the chance to read uh, some children's books to all of my uh, nieces and daughters when we were up in, up in Canada, and it was kind of fun to have, you know, a lot of little attentive people reading, reading a book. And sometimes, you know, you read these children's books, and there's this there are these moments where as, as the parent reading your book, you said, this is a little bit in, intense, like somebody's in great peril and somebody is about to die. And, and, and one of these assembled little people in this moment where I was sort of concerned that maybe the book was too intense for them, they said, that's okay. There's a happy ending. There's a happy ending. She'd read the book before. She knew the end. And so you and I, when we come to a psalm like this that really reflects all of the difficulties in our life, all of the things that might not seem like they are fertile soil for praise, can with that young child say, there's a, there's a happy ending. God is the one who is worthy of praise because he restores by his power. His word runs swiftly. He will do what he has said he will do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, would you use these words in this psalm to move our hearts to praise you? Lord, there is so much capacity to expand our praise for you. Our words are too few, too small, too infrequent. Lord, even this morning, would you show us and restore us by your power that we can praise you because of Jesus. We praise you because of your pleasure in provision. Lord, we delight in your word and delight in your truth. By the power of your spirit, would you accomplish this? We ask in Christ's name, amen.